This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. You're listening to audio from one of our third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Learn more about the third Thursday webinars at michaeljfox.org slash webinars. Thanks for listening. Thank you everyone for joining us. I'm Dr. Rachel Dolan, Vice President of Medical Communications at the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and I'm your moderator today. Our panelists will be discussing thinking and memory changes that can happen with Parkinson's disease, strategies to lower the risk of these symptoms or ease their effects, and research toward new treatments. So let's get into it and meet our panelists. First, we have Ava Butler from Tucson, Arizona. In 2017, Ava lost her husband of 25 years, Richard, who had Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia. Thanks for joining us, Ava. Thank you. This is an important topic. Happy to be here. Totally agree. Dr. Katie Amadeo is Assistant Professor of Neurology and Psychiatry at the University of Rochester Medical Center, and she's also an Edmund J. Safra Fellow who graduated this year. We're really glad you're with us, Dr. Amadeo. Thank you. Yes, I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> and Dr. Stephen Gompers is Assistant Professor of Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital. We're really happy to have you, Dr. Gompers. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So we've got a lot to cover and a lot of questions that have already been submitted and are already being submitted. So let's jump right into it. The things that we're going to cover today, um, you'll see on the next slide, are um, what is cognition? So what's, what's the definition of cognition? We often talk about memory, but what else is involved in cognition? Um, we'll think about how that changes with normal aging and also with memory. We'll talk about the experience of cognitive changes how doctors evaluate and treat this symptom, strategies to potentially even prevent or manage cognitive changes, and what research is working to address this issue. All right, so Katie, can you um, get us started in talking basically about what cognition is? So as I mentioned, people often think about memory when they talk about cognition, but we often don't think about the thinking part of cognition and all these other things that you see on this kind of busy slide here. So will you tell us sort of the basic definition of cognition and what it really involves? Yeah. So, they, so, you know, when we think about cognition and the way I always, you know, try to introduce it to, to my patients and, and or if I'm giving a talk is that it really is, you know, all forms of thinking and it, not necessarily just meaning memory. So when we think about cognition, I think we equate that with memory. But when we talk about cognition, it's it's all the ways in which we process and um, respond and and think, you know, about things in our environment and our everyday activities, the way that we're able to, you know, function from a cognitive perspective. And so um, there and there are several domains. So there's more than just memory. There's executive function, which is really our, you know, our ability to multitask, plan, problem solve, organize. There's attention, which, um, you know, is the way we're able to focus. And and honestly, sometimes when we when somebody's coming in for evaluation for memory impairment, sometimes it's an attention issue because if if you're not paying attention, you're not going to remember, right? And then there's visual spatial is another domain. So the way that we um, can put things together around us and orient ourselves with our surroundings. Language is another important domain, and um, 
and then up the other ones on here as well, so social perception. And so, you know, when we talk about cognition, we're talking about all of these domains. And when we talk about, you know, impairment, it can be in any one of those, these domains. That's a really helpful beginning. And Steve, I'd like you to not get into too much detail right now, but maybe just give us a little glimpse into what we're going to talk about a little bit later. But how are these affected in Parkinson's? What are the main ones that we often see affected in Parkinson's? Well, it turns out in Parkinson's disease, many patients will develop subtle changes in thinking. Sometimes they're not even aware of those changes, but they can be identified on, on careful structured testing. And the domains that are often involved in Parkinson's disease are, are the executive function domain that we just heard about, um, difficulty with multitasking and uh, perhaps judgment, uh, planning. Um, it can be harder to... Uh, perform more complex tasks like manipulate a computer, um, keep track of a complex medication regimen. We can also develop problems with visual spatial skills. We might start to uh, find ourselves more dependent on GPS, GPS behind the wheel, getting lost more often than uh, before. And we can develop some problems with, uh, with uh, memory as well, particularly short-term memory. Although it's, if you're under careful scrutiny, it's different typically from the pattern of short-term memory loss that arises in the, um, the other very common disease, Alzheimer's disease. That's really helpful. And Ava, I'd like to bring you in now for, um, to give us a little bit more context around what the real life experience around this is. So we mentioned in the introduction that your husband, Richard, lived with Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia for several years, and he had some of these cognitive changes, and you experienced those as well with him. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those looked like? Sure. Um, and when he was diagnosed in 2010, I had no idea that any cognitive issues would be coming to play, and so they all came as a kind of nasty surprise. Um, things, and it's, of course, things evolved over time. But you know, regarding executive function, for example, um, putting the dishes anywhere, not necessarily in the kitchen, the dirty ones, and cleaning them in a very random way. I would find dishes put dirty in the wrong area or an area that wouldn't even be in the kitchen. So that was um, a bit of a surprise. Putting, getting dressed is difficult. For example, um, trying to put his shirt on his legs, which is, just mm -hmm. won't work <laughs> no matter mm -hmm. how much you try. He had a wonderful sense of direction but got lost on familiar routes and also mm -hmm. started to have trouble transferring money and doing simple things. Um, Definitely find, having trouble finding words or completing sentences and keeping up with conversations. He could follow them, but he was too. It was he couldn't keep up. And mm. um, you know, certainly forgetting. Well, he forgot my name and his. Not every day, but sometimes. So certainly everything on this page. We did not experience the social perception issue, but I do know that uh, that is very common. And so was it, and, and again, we're going to get into this a little bit more later, but when you started to look at these things, how did you piece them together? Because oftentimes people say, you know, what's normal aging? You know, I forget my keys. Is, is that normal or is that Parkinson's or is that dementia? So how did you start to piece together that all of these things were not a normal part of aging? Um, well, I mean, first of all, he was passed away when he was 65, so he was pretty young. Um, but these, I mean, I have normal senses of 
you know, things like forgetting where my car keys are, it takes me longer to remember somebody's name. That was absolutely not what was happening here. I mean, you don't forget how to get home from the golf course you've been to 200 times. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just not normal. Or, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, the executive functioning things. As an example, he used to take care of all of our finances, and he was transferring money from one of our bank accounts to another, and he couldn't do it anymore and, and said, you know, I used to be good at math, but I don't understand why this is happening. And that was just not a normal thing. But right. it can be confusing, especially when signs are very small. Um, but in, in my case, they were absolutely not normal. I just Definitely. had no idea also, they were part of Parkinson's. Exactly. And, and that's part of why we're having this conversation, because people say they weren't aware of this or they weren't sure how, how this happens or, or what it looks like. So, so that's part of this conversation for sure. Um, let's let's mm-hmm. continue on and, and expand on what we, we talked on a little bit. Stephen, um, on the next slide, we see that cognitive changes can happen in Parkinson's and they can happen to different degrees. Um, and, and we see a lot of these definitions that people may hear thrown around of wow, cognitive impairment or dementia. And, and you know, people oftentimes say, you know, I, I don't want the medical definition of that. I want to know what it actually means in my life. But can you sort of take us through, we started the conversation with that what, what cognition is and that this can change somewhat with aging, but take us through, you know, how it can change with aging, but then how it can change kind of across the spectrum we see on the slide and, and what, those, what those mean. Well, I'd be happy to. So that's right. Some cognitive changes really are expected with aging. We can become slower um, and this can be, you know, detectable on in our day-to-day function, but really our general visual spatial skills, our executive function, our, our short-term memory is really qu- remains quite good. And we have a lot of data on what normal aging looks like to compare against. And we also have some cognitive changing arising in people with Parkinson's disease, as I mentioned before, that can be detected with careful testing. But it's when it, when it starts to, to get in the way, when people are noticing this, uh, that's when we start to think about um, pathologic aging. And mild cognitive impairment is the, the first broad category that we think about. And in this category of MCI, mild cognitive impairment, uh, this is associated with a gradual decline in thinking abilities that people will notice, their loved ones might notice. And that's also observed by the clinician. But the cognitive deficits are not severe enough to interfere significantly with functional independence, like working or home activities, hobbies, chores, and community functions. So this is this is mild cognitive impairment, and it's it's the loss of that that uh, functional independence that leads to a diagnosis of dementia and Parkinson's disease. The the transition to loss of of this functional independence. So patients will now require assistance with their daily activities. And it's really important to point out that this is not due to their motor impairments, but due to their thinking difficulties. Mm. And using very crude uh, criteria, we can differentiate this into three broad buckets, mild, moderate, and severe dementia. In mild dementia, people can you know, no longer work. They're going to have difficulty with problem solving and complex, complex tasks. Uh, judgment may, may no longer be sound, and it, it's going to be hard, to, if, if not impossible, to safely balance a checkbook, manage the finances or a medication regimen. Uh, difficulty organizing and expressing thoughts um, are often marked, and people might have difficulty following and participating in conversations, keeping track of where the conversation is going. 
even using something like a television remote control uh, might become uh, inaccessible. And memory, uh, when these problems arise, uh, memory for recent events can be increasingly impaired. People might forget the content of recent conversations, misplace items around the home. With the transition to moderate dementia, uh, all of these problems can really significantly worsen, um, really, you know, markedly so, and patients will start to require help with some basic activities of daily living as well, such as dressing, using the bathroom, and other self-care. Um, and so this is really a, a marked uh, worsening of function. And the term severe dementia is really used for the late stage of the disease. At this point, people are really quite impaired and will often lose the ability to communicate coherently. They'll often not make sense. People will now require really total assistance with personal care, including dressing, eating, and toileting. And people may become bedbound in this setting uh, and may start to lose uh, the ability even to swallow, putting them at risk for complications like pneumonia. Thanks for that summary. It was really, really detailed and really helpful. A couple questions coming through on this. Um, Katie, can you tell us mm -hmm. how people potentially go along this spectrum? Now, does having mild cognitive impairment mean that you will definitely get mild dementia and then you will go along all the way to severe dementia? Or how, how does this kind of happen in people? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. So, um, you know, so when we see individuals um, who are um, having, you know, deficits in one of these domains that we talked about, um, just like Steve said, we, we kind of go through and ask more questions about is there impact in function and so forth. And so often we hear, you know, in the early stages we might hear, oh, you know, or they're having trouble with one or two domains, but there's no impact in function. And so we would call that mild cognitive impairment. And then that would then prompt the discussion of what does that mean? So, um, it you know, and what I say, and it it can be an early stage or part of like an or, uh, part of that spectrum to progress to dementia, but not everybody will. So some individuals may stay along this this mild cognitive impairment, and we follow them over time, and there's really little change. Um, some individuals will convert over time and of course that that time can be very different for everybody and in, in the context of you know parkinson's it can be over many years so it can take you know so some people may not convert for 20 years um so it can be very variable in the timing of conversion to from mild cognitive impairment to dementia and then of course we always are looking for is the cognitive impairment due to something potentially reversible um such as a medication change such as maybe you know untreated depression and if that's the case and we can address those symptoms um i mean those causes then we can see actually individuals get better and so um you know that cognitive impairment we don't, you know, wasn't due to part of the spectrum. So um, I guess that's how I think about it. So fair to say kind of then in summary that if somebody has mild cognitive impairment, they could potentially mm -hmm. progress to dementia, but they mm -hmm. could also stay the same or they could even get better depending on the person and depending on what else is going on. Exactly. Okay, great. And then, Steve, anything else to add on? A lot of people often ask, when do cognitive changes happen in Parkinson's? When should I potentially be worried about these or looking for these or testing for them? Well, you know, everyone's different. Um, 
But the broad, the broad observations are that the longer a person has Parkinson's disease, the, the, lo- the greater the risk of running into trouble with thinking in regular idiopathic Parkinson's disease. Um, r- additional risk factors that we have no control over whatsoever uh, for developing trouble thinking include uh, getting the illness at a later age or having atypical features um, that doctors would pick up on, like the, a lot of early postural balance problems, postural instability, not a lot of tremor. Um, these would be sort of risk factor features. Um, and But I, I think that Katie's point about uh, really emphasizing what the reversible contributions are to trouble thinking is going to be really important because in many people, there are things we can do to, to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and the key is to, to look for doctors uh, to team up with patients and look very carefully for reversible contributions. That's important, and we'll get into that a little bit later more in the evaluation and the treatment. But again, Ava, just to bring you in, just to stress the importance of having a conversation with your loved one and your doctors, how, how do you um, talk to people about that now and, and caution them to have a conversation? Um, well, you, a lot of times people feel embarrassed um, or shy about talking about cognitive issues, and that's not going to help you. I mean, I would recommend very, you know, honest and respectful conversations with your person who's in this situation. I mean, they're not a a child. They're grown up with issues. So don't use child voices or talk about them in the third person. You know, be be respectful of of them and um, be open with yourself, the person, your friends, your family, and your doctors. And be proactive. Doctors don't always, even in 2019, understand these issues very well. And um, you do need to, to um, take the lead, I would say. In Richard's case, his decline, and it's, it's unusual for most people, his, his cognitive decline was extremely fast. We went mm-hmm. through all these phases in a year and a half, um, mm-hmm. which was shocking. But, you know, we just had to deal with it in an open and, um, as I said, respectful way. Mm. Really great advice. So let's move into talking a little bit more specifically about Lewy body dementia, which is what Richard lived with, and, and some of the other kind of causes of dementia. So one of the misconceptions, Katie, is that mm-hmm. all dementia is Alzheimer's, right? So um, mm-hmm. dementia is a disease and only has one cause. But actually, that's not true. There are other potential diseases and conditions that can cause dementia. We were, we were talking earlier about some of the reversible ones, but on this slide, we see listed some common terms that people may come across that can be really confusing. You hear Parkinson's disease, dementia, and dementia with Lewy bodies, and Lewy body dementia, and it's hard to know what's what. But can you just briefly take us through um, this slide and what this means? Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, and so just like Rachel said, um, in de- when we are making a diagnosis of dementia, which is a real is an umbrella term that just means, um, you know, changes in global changes in cognitive function. So across those domains we talked about, that's impacting function, um, you know, with objective e- evidence of, of impairment on our testing. And so that's an umbrella term. So often people, when they hear dementia, they think Alzheimer's, and and that's understandable in that. Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia, but it's important to know it's just one of the causes. But but definitely the one of, it's most common, accounting for 
up to 80% of the dementias. But then the second most common cause of neurodegenerative dementia are the Lewy body dementias, which is another umbrella term. So I, uh, Lewy body dementia is an umbrella term to include dementia with Lewy bodies and Parkinson's disease with dementia. And so then, you know, so sometimes in some individuals who've been diagnosed with Parkinson's and then they start to see the cognitive changes, then they start to ask, so is this, you know, dementia with Lewy bodies? And, um, and this is where I'll talk a little bit about, you know, I don't, you know, that this, to distinguish Parkinson's disease with dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies, we do distinguish them, but they, you know, that some some individuals, some in the field, consider them part of a spectrum. But the way to think about them are, they're both neurodegenerative disorders that involve abnormal alpha synuclein protein. This abnormal protein that forms Lewy bodies, so they both have that um, in common as their pathology. They both can have premotor or prodromal features like REM behavior disorder, anosmia, constipation. They both can have the Parkinsonian motor features, so the slowness of movement or bradykinesia, the rest tremor, the rigidity. And then, as we're talking about today, they both can have cognitive and behavioral disturbances. It's the timing of onset of the cognitive and behavioral changes in relation to the motor features is that's how we distinguish them and so um so traditionally with parkinson's disease it's the, people are presenting with the motor symptoms first the the rest tremor the slowness of movement and then it's not for years and what we say you know is at least a year um after the onset of the motor symptoms that we start to see cognitive changes where in so conversely in dementia with Lewy bodies, we see the motor symptoms occurring within a year of the onset of the cognitive. So the cognitive is occurring within a year of the motor symptoms, and that's how we um, distinguish them. I say at the bottom there's a note about these conditions can be accompanied with, you know, like a psychosis or hallucinations, delusions, depression, and anxiety. And um, again, that can be in in both in Parkinson's disease with dementia um, or dementia with Lewy bodies. Um, and so, and I guess it's, it's also important to note that sometimes, you know, I get the question of, so the hallucinations and depression, anxiety may not occur in the context of cognitive changes in Parkinson's. So you may see depression, anxiety prodromally before the motor symptoms. Um, and so there doesn't have to be cognitive changes to see these symptoms, but it's just an important note. And, and Ava, I'd like to bring you in here because you mentioned that Richard had some mm -hmm. of these really bothersome symptoms, these hallucinations and delusions, but also the depression and anxiety. And you shared how difficult those can be to manage and, and live with. So tell us a little bit more about your experience mm -hmm. with dementia with Lewy bodies. Yeah, sure. And, you know, building on what Katie said, Richard had all of those issues, mm -hmm. hallucinations, delusions, mm -hmm. depression, anxiety. Um, and they were very difficult to manage, and some of them were showing up before even some of the physical symptoms. You know, getting um, you know a lot more depression and anxiety about things like um, that we never had issues with before, like flying. We we flew a lot, and you know suddenly he had a fear of flying. Things like that, or delusions about mm. um, me or people stealing money, and. Um, hallucinations for him were very vivid. For a lot of people, hallucinations are just some, you know, benign thing, like, oh, there's a person sitting in my chair, or the, there's a person in the trees, or, 
you know, whatever. In, in his case, they were very um, fear-based. Um, so, you know, there were commandos outside and, um, you know, people, we have a, this beautiful totem pole and villages of people would live in the totem pole and come out periodically. And um, the plants would turn into children and the, the um, white chairs by the pool turned into a bride and groom. Or there would be um, bands playing outside. I mean, it was um, some very fearful and some, you know, just just things to deal with. Um, I found that, especially as things went on, to try to correct him was not helpful. Um, it was much better to just manage them. Sometimes I'd open the door, for example, and say, okay, you, time for you to go out and shoo them out the door. Yeah, you have a lot of helpful tips, and we've put a lot of these tips that, that you shared with me in our new guide on navigating cognitive changes in Parkinson's, which you can find in your resource list, but a lot more of the information we're covering in this in this webinar, and also the tips like this, Ava, that you found were helpful with hallucinations and delusions, and when some of the other treatments just weren't enough or, or didn't cover the, the hallucinations and delusions. For me, this this page, was my, by far my most challenging for both, for everybody. Could you clarify a little bit this page, meaning the... Um, the, the issues we're discussing on this page around hallucinations, oh, sure. delusions, anxiety, were more difficult to manage than the cognitive issues, although those were pretty darn hard, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And... Steve, we often get questions about um, how many people with Parkinson's get dementia or cognitive changes, and can I get Alzheimer's if I have Parkinson's? How do you answer those? There's a fair amount of um, good, solid epidemiology data out there looking at those kind of numbers, and there's a broad range, but broadly speaking, about approximately 30% of people with Parkinson's, disease pay, um, with Parkinson's have dementia. Um, and in terms of the transition from Parkinson's uh, to a full-blown dementia, it's on the order of 3 to 10% per year that people are, are transitioning to a full-blown dementia. The risk of dementia in people with Parkinson's is actually about threefold greater than in people without Parkinson's. So having Parkinson's really is a risk factor for developing mm -hmm. trouble thinking and, and a full-blown dementia. And talk a little bit more. Let's move to the next slide because diagnosing these conditions is really difficult and it's hard oftentimes to separate, as you mentioned, Katie, which is which because, you know, we, we just use timing to separate Parkinson's disease dementia from Lewy body dementia and Alzheimer's and, and these sorts of things. Um, so, Stephen, maybe you can take us through this slide a little bit. If, if somebody talks to their doctor about cognitive changes, what, what are the next to that evaluation and then potentially treatment? Sure, well, um, great question. I think the, the doctor has to work very carefully with the patient to try to get a sense of um, what, what might be going on. Um, for example, Katie earlier mentioned depression and anxiety. Um, these can impact cognition. A, a person who's really down and ruminating and is going to be busy thinking to themselves when someone else tells them something and then they'll be mad at themselves for having forgotten what was told them when in fact mm -hmm. the primary problem was one of, of depression. Um, anxiety likewise uh, can really impact thinking in, in significant ways. So doctors have to think and about... And I'll just interrupt um, you there for one second because we're getting a question also about sleep, which can be impacted in Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. Is that something that can also impact cognition? It certainly can. Um, disrupted sleep uh, 
can absolutely affect thinking, whether it's through Parkinson's or non-Parkinson's disease-related illness, um, you know, severe obstructive sleep apnea, um, starves the brain of oxygen, results in excessive daytime sleepiness and, and makes it really hard to think straight. And in general, sleep disorders can impact thinking. Um, and some of the medicines we use to try to control our sleep problems can also affect thinking. So, for example, uh, the REM sleep behavioral disorder, the dream enactment associated with Parkinson's disease, will, will um, often treat, some, sometimes aggressively, and that can lead the medicines we might use, benzodiazepines, can also potentially have an effect on, on thinking as well. Um, other things to, to think about, of course, uh, for doctors will be other, uh, other medications used to treat Parkinson's and just you know, older people um, in the age group that gets Parkinson's are often on multiple medications, and sometimes those medications alone are capable of causing trouble thinking. Sometimes through interactions, uh, they can cause trouble thinking, and likewise, supplements, or for example, the use of, of, uh, of marijuana um, or other experimental things, alcohol used um, socially. Um, as well. So doctors have to review all these medicines and, uh, and, and exposures and think of them as potentially toxic. And many of the medicines we'll use to treat Parkinson's, for example, um, trihexyphenidyl or artane, which is quite good for, for tremor, is very good at causing trouble with uh, thinking, trouble with memory, and even bringing out hallucinations uh, in, in older patients uh, with Parkinson's disease. The, the dopamine agonists like uh, ropinirole, um, pramipexol, uh, and the reticotine patch are also all very good at causing trouble thinking. Uh, as well in bringing out hallucinations, and even amantadine also. So a, a, you know, three broad classes of agents that we use aggressively and successfully to treat the problems with moving can cause trouble with thinking. So it's, it's important for doctors to think about the medications and the dosing. Um, carbidopa, levodopa, really very successful um, workhorse for treating Parkinson's motor problems at high dose also can be problematic, although at lower dose it's usually actually generally uh, quite well tolerated. And then outside of the Parkinson's medicines, it's just worth mentioning very common medicines that older patients will be exposed to that can cause trouble thinking as well. So sleep medicines like I touched upon, whether it's Tylenol PM or, you know, which has Benadryl in it, these PM agents can really make it, um, can really affect thinking significantly. Ambien, um, the Ativan, lorazepam, these benzodiazepines are all potentially problematic. Some bladder medications as well that are meant to just act on the bladder can cross the blood-brain barrier and affect brain function as well. Some of the anti older antidepressants can have these problems as well. So I think it is important for doctors to work hard with, uh, with patients and their, and their caregivers to, to go through that and consider other medical conditions as well, thyroid disorder, B12 deficiencies, which are common causes of trouble thinking, as well as metabolic problems, um, which might show up as a, cal a salt imbalance, electrolyte imbalance, liver function problems, kidney problems. And then doctors can um, quantify the, the, you know, get a detailed assessment of, of cognitive function through detailed neuropsychological testing. And neuropsychologists are trained to perform these careful tests to look at these, the strengths and weaknesses across the different domains of uh, cognition that we touched upon earlier. And that can be quite useful to get a sense of, of you know, what's strong, what's not strong, both for diagnosis but also to get a sense of a baseline. Um, 
uh, and level of severity across these domains that are sometimes hard to assess in the short time that we that doctors will have with their patients. With respect to treatments, once we've gotten rid of all the the toxic agents we possibly can, um, including you know, medications and the like, then, then it is time for doctors to start um, uh, thinking about treatments. And, and just a quick word about diagnosis. I haven't touched upon uh, brain imaging, but I do think it's important to get uh, care for, for doctors to get careful brain imaging to look at the contribution of vascular disease or, or other processes, some of which might even rarely on a rare occasion be reversible. Um, but it's really important for, for brain imaging to be performed because we wouldn't want to miss something that's going to alter how we, how we treat these illnesses and, and even the diagnosis we make. But once that's all established, there are medications that have been proven to be effective, uh, both for Parkinson's dementia and for dementia with Lewy bodies. Um, the, m most of these work by increasing a brain chemical called acetylcholine. The cells that make that brain chemical are damaged in both Parkinson's uh, and dementia with Lewy bodies. And so it's, their loss definitely contributes to trouble thinking. And we can increase acetylcholine using medicines um, like ribostigmine, uh, known as Exlon in the U.S., and um, also uh, donepezole. Um, is another one. And there, there are multiple treatment trials um, in the U.S. and internationally uh, in support of uh, those agents, uh, both in, in uh, Parkinson's dementia and in dementia with Lewy bodies. In terms of mild cognitive impairment with Parkinson's disease, the, there's not as much data in support of uh, treating medically, um, but it's worth mentioning that there are a few clinical trials uh, that support uh, that show benefit or certainly a trend to benefit. Um, these are smaller clinical trials, but using the same strategy, using medicines that increase um, acetylcholine in the brain. There's another class of medicine um, called memantine, which has been used like these other agents in Alzheimer's disease for some time. And in combination with medicines like ribostigmine or donepezole, there appears to be some benefit in clinical trials, although modest on average, but everyone's different. Some might have a, a more significant benefit. Well, many will have no benefit, but it's, it's often worth trying and then getting rid of the agent if it isn't beneficial. In terms of non-medication strategies, um, I think it, it is worth talking about um, cognitive therapy as, as well as um, physical therapy um, this, um, and sort of exercise. Um, it turns out there's actually a lot of data in support of exercise and thinking in Parkinson's disease, and, and that's worth doing. And very likely the same rules will apply in dementia with Lewy bodies, the, the, sister, the sister illness. Um, and there, you know, anything, any exercise you can do that's more than you're doing already counts. So I think exercise is important, and there, there are a, way, a number of ways to do that in a, in a formally and plugging into Parkinson's resources for that purpose. In terms of cognitive therapy, People who aren't too cognitively impaired to benefit uh, can benefit, I think, from cognitive therapy if, the, if they're seeing a good cognitive therapist focusing in on particular weaknesses they've got to help them practice. The problem with cognitive therapy, the, the, the research that's out there suggests that if you get really good, say, at Sudoku, um, that doesn't necessarily mean you'll be good at anything other than Sudoku. And so um, we really want the cognitive therapy to focus in on the things that are actually causing a person trouble so they can benefit from those kinds of therapy strategies. And I think broadly speaking, um, it is valuable to take advantage of the expertise of, of movement disorder and cognitive specialists uh, to help manage these symptoms and sometimes to work collaboratively um, together.
uh, for this purpose. Some, some groups uh, like ours in the Lewy Body Dementia uh, Unit uh, do both, but there are many places where it's just a movement disorder unit or just a, a cognitive specialty group, and it's, it's nice to, to work together to make sure we're optimizing both movement and thinking in the same person. That's a lot to think about, but a lot that you can do with your doctor to look into these symptoms and these changes and, you know, potentially change around or reduce medications if that's safe for you or look at other medical conditions, as you mentioned. But Ava, there's a question about how can a loved one or a, a care partner bring up cognitive changes to their doctor if the person living with them doesn't want to discuss them or maybe doesn't even think there are changes? Do you have any advice there? Yes, absolutely, and, and thanks for the question. As a care partner, you need to be proactive. And um, if your doctor doesn't bring it up, you bring it up. And, you know, once again, be in a matter-of-fact way, bringing it, giving as many examples as you can. And if your doctor is not paying attention, you may consider a different doctor. Um, not all neurologists and specialists are created equal, and you need to find one that works for you. And I definitely want to um, build on Stephen's point of, of uh, creating a team. Uh-huh. You know, find the team that's going to help you and your loved one. Yeah, it's very individualized and, and finding the right treatments that work for you and the right doctors who work with you. Um, it, it, um, Katie or Stephen, anything to add there on if, you know, if you have a, a difference of opinion on what's going on or how people can bring it up? Is it safer to bring it up in a more um, objective way and just kind of asking, you know, hey, are there cognitive changes or other symptoms that go along with Parkinson's? Mm-hmm. And then that kind of gives the doctor the window to open the conversation or, or ask more questions around that. Yeah. Katie, maybe yeah, you know, I, start. Sure. Sure, sure. So I think, um, you know, as we've talked about, um, you know, I think it's becoming increasingly recognized um, that there are more than just motor features to Parkinson's. There are, you know, these non-motor features. We mentioned depression, anxiety. We mentioned, um, you know, potentially psychosis. And then, of course, we're talking about cognition. So I think whenever you're seeing um, whoever you're seeing for for management of your Parkinson's, it's always good to be bringing up these other non-motor symptoms. If your doctor isn't, which I, which you know, they, we should be, but if not, then you know, just kind of running through a checklist of of these other non-motor features, because yes, it's important that it's brought up and it's talked about, just like the motor symptoms. Um, and so I think one thing that we find to be helpful is um, I often tell my patients to come with a list of things they want to talk about before the visit, mm-hmm. um, because that makes sure that things are being addressed. Mm-hmm. I think always having a, a care partner with you, so you know, like like Ava mentioned, um, is very helpful to make sure that that they're there to kind of bring up these things if they're not being brought up. And also, you know, I think in the office. You know, something for for more for providers is is having these questionnaires or think um, like we use for example this UPDRS as a tool um, to kind of go through these non-motor features as well. So to make sure that they're giving they're getting as much attention as the motor features. Oh, sorry, I just want to very quickly echo the value of having yeah. a, care, a, a caregiver yeah. present. Yeah. I just think that's super important. And um, patients won't always have a whole lot of insight into some of the problems that they're having. And mm-hmm. um, it's great to have someone else advocating for, mm-hmm. for patients mm-hmm. uh, present for that purpose. 
Yeah, it's really helpful. It's sometimes a lot, and especially the mood symptoms, Katie, you were mentioning, and Ava, you mentioned that can go along with sometimes the people who are experiencing them don't recognize them or see them, and the loved ones are the first ones to notice that there's a change there. Um, but Katie, I'll ask you to kind of continue with us on the next slide, mm -hmm. because there's a question mm -hmm. about what, what's the reason for even measuring cognitive change since we can't do anything about it? So is yeah. there also a myth yeah. that we can't do anything about cognitive change? What would you, what would you you say to people in this situation why is it important to measure it and what can yeah. you do so you know i think just as steven said and um is that there there are things we can do so unfortunately we you know we don't have a cure and I, um we're trying <laughs> i think the, the field is definitely trying but we don't have a cure but we do have ways that can help and i you know i typically talk about this twofold just as steven was saying there's non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic approaches and honestly you know, particularly in the mild cognitive uh, stages where maybe there's a little bit less evidence, um, although, as Stephen said, we sometimes it can be used with good um, benefit using those medicines, the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, but, but typically we aren't recommending pharmacologic therapy in those stages because um, the evidence just isn't there or because, um, you know, maybe it's patient preference. Um, and so the things that we can do non-pharmacologically that we know to be helpful are diet, um, exercise, socialization, and strategies. Those are the big ones I talk about. Um, and so when we think about exercise, I think there's the strongest data for that to help with both our motor and non-motor symptoms. Um, and, you know, so there's, so exercise. So I say, you know, you know, try to get some cardio in, uh, a mix of cardio and weight training, um, walking, you know, be active. We know that that's helpful. And actually, you know, it, it is disease modifying. It can slow the disease. So, so exercise. Um, socialization. Socialization is so important um, and because the worst thing we could do was isolate ourselves. So, so socialization because people are interesting. We learn from people. It's, it's, it helps um, with your cognition and neuroplasticity. So, so socialization is so important. Um, so I love to hear when families, you know, they're, they're very close together. They have the grandkids over or maybe they have church groups or, or friend groups that they play cards with. I say, keep doing that. Keep doing that. Um, um, or start doing it. <laughs> and then as far as diet, you know, what I say for that, you know, I think the best evidence in terms of cognition is for a Mediterranean diet. So thinking about, you know, what are they eating in Tuscany tonight? So fish, fruits, vegetables, really things that, um, you know, is, is generally healthy for us for our cardiac health, but we know it'd be beneficial for, for cognition as well. Um, and so, and then with that, what I say is try to avoid inflammatory things. So sugar in general, so too much sugar can be, um, you know, harmful actually. So everything in moderation. And then of course, there are also strategies that can help. And so, you know, Stephen already alluded to the fact that we should be looking for reversible causes. So I'm always, you know, screening for depression, sleep problems, as, as the audience brought up, hearing issues. So I think hearing problems can be overlooked. And so, so making sure that that's being addressed, if that's a, a, um, something that can interfere with attention or memory. Um, and then what I, you know, and is reducing demands on yourself. So, and simplifying, organizing, writing things down, delegating. These are things that I think sometimes we're hesitant to do, but it is okay to do. And it can be very, very helpful um, in, in with your cognition.
important for your treatment plan. So I like I like including yeah. those and thinking about how you can make a strategy with a, a cognitive therapist and with your doctor that's unique to you. So one size does not fit all for these kinds of strategies. And Ava, I'd like to ask you about some of the tips on the right-hand side of the screen, because you and the other um, care partners and family members who helped me put that guide together that I mentioned that's in our resource list brought a lot of these tips to my attention about how to live with mm -hmm. cognitive changes or live with a loved one who had cognitive changes. And, and you mentioned also the importance of a support group, and, and that brings in also that socialization Katie was talking about. But what would you tell families and loved ones of people who are living with uh, cognitive Changes. Well, um, you know, definitely your life has changed and will continue to change. And the, uh, to me, the important thing is to remember is what really were the most critical things in my life. So let's focus on, you know, our love for each other and being together, not, you know, all the other fluffy things that we could get rid of. So we could just focus on the most important. I would absolutely plan ahead. Um, as I mentioned, Richard's decline was extremely fast. If we would not have had our living wills and things in order before this, there's no way that um, we could have done it after because you have to be of sound mind um, to sign documents. Um, and it takes a village. I mean, don't, don't be a martyr. Don't think, you know, I can do this on my own because um, you would not be of this earth if that were the case. So. You know, look for your support system and build upon it um, before you're at a breaking point. Um, mm. and, and I would say there's a lot to learn. I mean, I learned things I didn't want to know, but I'm happy I did. I feel like I'm a better person for what I went through, even though it was darn tough. So look for the, you know, look for the balance of, you know, what are you learning and what's important versus, you know, oh, my goodness, what the heck is going on? So, um, mm. and keep learning. Important tips for all of us. And mm -hmm. so uh, I would like to, to continue on to the research. And, and Katie, you mentioned this already, that there are so many treatments in the pipeline that could potentially help with a lot of these symptoms we've been talking about, but also slow or stop the progression of dementia. Um, we're also really working to better understand what causes it and also measure it so that we can better predict and, and test the therapies that are in the clinical trials. Um, I'll, I'll stop with just that brief overview and get to questions because we're getting so many of them. Um, back to Katie, you, you gave us that great overview of Parkinson's disease, dementia, and dementia with Lewy bodies, and how they both fall under that umbrella term of Lewy body dementia. But why is it important to even put them in a different category or diagnose them differently? Do we treat them differently? Oh, that's a great question. And so, um, no. So, um, you know, I think often, I think we are moving toward kind of putting them under this umbrella, Louis body dementia, when there is dementia involved with Parkinson's, because um, they we really do at that point treat them very similarly. And clinically, patients can look very similar when there's dementia with Parkinson's. They can look very similar to those with dementia with Louis bodies. And so, um, you know, just like Stephen said, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors like rivastigmine or um, denepazil can be used in both, uh, in both Parkinson's disease dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies, so so in the Lewy body dementias. And then we're, when we are talking about managing the, the psychosis or the hallucinations or delusions, um, we, the, 
we can use agents like, well, actually, the most <laughs> evidence is in is Parkinson's dementia. So the new agent is Pemervanserin, where um, that can be used. But, um, you know, off-label people, you know, might may use it in dementia with Lewy bodies. Clozeril is used with good effect in both um, Parkinson's disease dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies. And then Seroquel is the other agent that we use. In both, um, so in the Lewy bodies, broad, Lewy body dementia broadly, so and then Parkinson's dementia and dementia with Lewy bodies, we have to be careful that to know that other dopamine blocking agents or other antipsychotics should be avoided in both. Um, so mm-hmm. the three that we use safely are Clozeril, Pemervanserin, or Seroquel, or Quetiapine. Um, in terms of when we're thinking about dopaminergic therapy, so the motor symptoms, this is may this may be where they vary a little bit. So in Parkinson's, like I said uh, earlier, you know individuals are are presenting with the motor features, and so often they're being treated with dopaminergic therapy or anti-Parkinsonian meds, I should say more broadly. So levodopa or the other agents like dopamine agonists or amantadine, where um, and so in generally in the beginning they it's generally responsive. Um, they're typically well tolerated, and we don't start to see you know maybe some drug and Reduced um, effects like psychosis or hallucinations until later stages, where in dementia with Lewy bodies, if when there's the motor features in the setting of cognitive, it's it's a little bit more tricky there because you know if the motor features are to the point that maybe they're causing fault, you know it may be reasonable to have levodopa on board. Um, there is some, you know, suggestion in the literature that maybe these individuals are less responsive to dopamine, but I think a lot of us clinically see that they they are responsive, um, and so we often maybe will use a low dose. Um, but of course, there's the concern for limited tolerability in these patients once there is, you know, so if there's if it is dementia with Lewy bodies or Parkinson's with dementia, you know, it could exacerbate psychosis or confusion. And so you have to be more careful. So I think in terms of when we're thinking about treating the motor features, that's where they differ. But in terms of treating the cognitive and psychosis, we actually address them this similarly. So the treatment, excuse me, the treatment strategies are pretty similar, mm-hmm. but it's helpful to mm-hmm. have a, a diagnosis, especially of Lewy body dementia or mm-hmm. dementia with Lewy bodies because of the potential progression and being able to plan ahead mm-hmm. and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think exactly. I think that that's fair um, because we do think, you know, because we already said that the the cognitive uh, symptoms are occur very early with dementia with Lewy bodies, and so I think having that diagnosis has obviously a different prognosis, so it can be helpful. Um, Steve, a question for you about deep brain stimulation and cognitive changes. Does it help or harm them, or have any effect on them at all? Well, that's that's an interesting question. Um, you know, deep brain stimulation is a surgery, and neurosurgeons are putting in. Um, electrodes sometimes bilaterally, sometimes on one side to improve the motor function in Parkinson's disease, and that reliably, when successful, can reduce the requirement for the, the dopamine medications that patients are on. Um, by, by reducing some of those medications, thinking could theoretically even improve a bit um, if it's not quite perfect up front. A lot depends on where the electrodes are placed, and you know, because it's a procedure, there's some variability from from patient to patient, even on the order of millimeters. Um, Most patients don't have any cognitive problems from 
from the DBS placement, um, although occasionally it can happen. It's unusual. And people will work hard to come up with, a, with their doctors with a stimulation uh, paradigm uh, that works without causing trouble thinking. And sometimes that does require some tweaking to work. It's unusual for, for thinking to improve purely on the basis of, of, of DBS per se. It, it, one question that's come up in the past is whether or not patients with trouble thinking in Parkinson's should, can, should get DBS, uh, deep brain stimulation. There's been a matter of, of some debate uh, because in general, patients who have uh, dementia tend to do worse with deep brain stimulation than patients that don't. And so most facilities, many facilities will, will not do uh, DBS in patients who are having a lot of trouble thinking um, because of that. That said, it's still an active research question and it's not quite settled yet. And before you would get DBS, you would have a, a baseline cognitive testing to understand what your thinking and memory, where they stood, and, and if they would potentially change before deep brain stimulation. Is that right? That's right. You'll get a very careful evaluation um, to, to assess both your baseline function and also your candidacy um, as to whether it would make sense to proceed. Um, there, there are situations where people can do great with DBS and be a very effective uh, uh, treatment for the motor problems of Parkinson's, but it certainly doesn't appear to alter the course of thinking in Parkinson's disease um, insofar as you're stimulating uh, brain cells to improve moving circuit function. Um, you're driving circuits in the brain that help with moving, and we wouldn't expect to alter the protein the proteins that accumulate in the brain and contribute to trouble thinking and Parkinson's disease, uh, like alpha-synuclein in particular, but, but others as well. Um, so there's, there's little reason to think that this would actually alter the course of cognition in Parkinson's. Great. Katie, another question. Um, we touched on this earlier about if and when cognitive changes happen in Parkinson's and who they happen to, but there's a question about does this only happen in older people? Does it happen in young onset Parkinson's or earlier onset Parkinson's, which can happen under the age of 50? Anything to add there? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think even kind of touched on this a little earlier. We know that, um, you know, firstly, not everybody with Parkinson's will will have cognitive changes. Um, when we look um, at the epidemic, epidemiological studies, we know that uh, there can be mild cognitive impairment in about 40% of individuals at disease onset. But the, just like Stephen said, this tends to be in certain individuals, so individuals who are older at onset, um, individuals who have more postural instability or even early orthostatic changes or other, um, so where there's changes in their blood pressure with standing. Um, there are certain individuals who are more at increased risk. Um, so, you know, so I, so actually it's more likely in those with older onset. A question, Steve, on what are the early signs of memory problems? We talked a little bit about how memory can be affected in Parkinson's and, and even with age, but what would you say to that? Early signs of memory problems that are getting in the way might be forgetting the content of conversations. Um, so you might, you know, your, your loved ones might find that you're asking them the same question twice. Uh, forgetting plans and events, such as a 
you know, visit to see family or a, a visit to the doctor, increased reliance on notes or a calendar um, compared to baseline, like a significant change there. Um, some of us are just, you know, tend to use notes, um, uh, but a real change there would be significant and increased reliance on, on family members. Um, in addition, a tendency to start losing things around the home more, um, our, you know, watch, wallet, that sort of thing also would be um, clues. Um, you know, we, all of us experience problems finding our car in the parking lot, um, you know, coming out of the, uh, the grocery store, for example, on occasion. And that by itself should not be alarming to anybody. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's when it's, it's starting to get in the way, when it's changing, uh, that's when we start to pay attention. And that, then, then I think it's worthwhile um, getting your doctor involved. Mm -hmm. Ava, a question for you on sundowning. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that exact term, but this could be mm -hmm. when somebody gets worse at night. Um, so tell us a little bit more maybe about your experience with that and, and what you would tell people who are potentially living with that change. Yeah, um, sundowning is meaning, you know, obviously when the sun goes down, being not as functional in the afternoon versus or in the evening versus the morning uh, was definitely a factor for us. Um, we found that the change of the light increased hallucinations because, mm. you know, the trees look different, the wind, the wind can change. Um, certainly even the full moon or not made a difference. And so I would say just be very um, patient with that and know that it can happen and absolutely do not schedule things for the end of the day. You know, go when you, when um, your your loved one and you are at your best, which for most people are the morning. Mm. Really helpful. So we are already at the end of the hour. I can't believe it. And, and I know we had so many more questions than we could get to. But um, I will give each of our panelists just um, a, a couple seconds to give a last word on this important topic. And Katie, I'll start with you. Um, yeah, I think... You know, this is a very important topic that I think is often, um, unfortunately, maybe under-recognized. And so I, I just encourage that it's something that we, we talk about with each other as, you know, the provider and patient relationship and care partners so that we can, you know, recognize it and then, um, you know, talk about treatment and even get involved in early research as I think there's a lot of exciting research for those with cognitive impairment down, down the, the, in the pipeline. Absolutely. Steve? Well, I completely agree. I think these are, you know, important problems that, that people are experiencing. And the important thing is for, all, for us all to cue into them and engage with our, with our physicians and our, and our teams and do everything we can to, to mitigate them. Um, and I think there are a lot of useful strategies even now that, that can be helpful. We can't stop the progression of these diseases yet, but there's a lot of research uh, going on to that end. But what we can do is provide symptomatic benefit and get rid of all the complicating factors that could actually be making things a whole lot worse than they otherwise otherwise uh, would be. And uh, my, my expectation based upon the, the really significant similarities between Parkinson's disease and dementia with Lewy bodies, um, you know, looking under the brain, they have the same process going on. My expectation is that a cure for one will be a cure for both. Mm. Right, right, right. Super hopeful. And Ava, the yeah. last word is yours. Oh, thank you. Um, and thank you to you, uh, Rachel, and to the Michael J. Fox Foundation for mm -hmm. for this and for the guide that you put together. Um, it's so important to understand the cognitive issues and to treat them just like physical issues and not like something that, 
you talk about in whispered tones or in some kind of shameful way. It's important, um, and there's so much more to learn, and I'm really happy to have had the opportunity to be here with you today. Well, thank you again to you and to our other panelists for sharing your expertise. Thank you, everyone who joined and asked such thoughtful and insightful questions. And mark your calendars for our next webinar on October 17th, where we'll discuss a very popular topic of complementary and alternative approaches to Parkinson's care, including medical marijuana. We'll have staff behind the scenes again to answer your questions live. So we'll talk to you then. Have a great night. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.